Witnessing her in action is an arresting experience. Her weaving of words and poetry make her a powerful and compelling voice for a generation of Black women who are intent on not being denied. It's as if through her comes the force of voices of African women across the ages needing to be heard. She's undoubtedly one of the most important poets on the African continent. Today on Interiority, we go within with award-winning writer, presenter, actress and activist, Lebo Mashile. Her published works and performances have had a decisive impact on the world and in amplifying the voices of Black women. Reba Mashile Basukhodi Samalikani. Mukibane wa munesa morale ngwana wa le pula ne pula ha chabe. Ke machilwane a shibe. A shila nakala mushidi ka mosho a shila tlhogo tsa batho rena ba maswika maramaka ekego mai a chilwane. That is the poem that the Mashilas carry into the world. It is my privilege to share it with you in my father tongue, Sipulana. We call on memories buried deep inside skeletons of the first people to walk the skin of the earth, who nursed and nested in the cradle and spread civilizations across the planet like seeds. Tell us of air that flows through the heart of the land to all life and creation. Tell us of breath, the first song Tell us of words like constellations mapping our contributions to humanity. Tell us of infinity, how the universe lives in us. Tell us which stars bear our names so we no longer have to fear the night. Tell us of earth, of roots that course through the body of the land like veins through flesh. Tell us of the force that squeezed the red sand like dough to form mountains. Tell us how to build strong communities like gemstones forged under extreme pressure. We call on the desert to remember when she was the bottom of the sea. Help us understand how to be fluid like water how to remain supple without losing our identities. We call on volcanoes to inject us with flames of imagination. Once we carried tongues burping fire, we melted metals with our minds. Tell us what we have forgotten. We are not afraid of bones. Tell us what we have lost. We are not afraid of remembering. Tell us what has been erased. We are not afraid of time. Tell us who we once were. We are not afraid of ourselves. Yay! Hey, Delini. Hi, Delini. Yeah, yeah. It's a show uh, on the road. 
Akisim, man. Sorry. But it's, I mean, this is the comedy of errors that we're living in, right? This is the era. Yes, yes. And you just have to roll with it. Are you easy with that kind of thing? Or do you find yourself getting all worked up and like frustrated? You know, I think probably two months ago, I would have been a stress, a stress ball. But given mm. what situation is I think all of us have had to learn how to be a lot more patient you know but also I think there's there's the the tension of of everyday life in terms of having to like interact with the outside world on a daily basis having to take on all of these you know the energies of kind of moving through uh Joburg you know travel all of that that stress is gone So I'm finding Mm. that I have a lot more, even though it's been replaced by the stress of the pandemic and all that other stuff. But that just that that day to day stress of having to interact with so many people is gone. So do you have a thing for um, a bit of anxiety around crowds and a lot of people? Yes, I do. I have very big social anxiety. And isn't that ironic? Because in some ways I do too, you know, and people always think, but you work on a, on a radio station, you've worked in television. How do yeah. you, how do you, yeah. How do you have anxiety around crowds when the very nature of your job requires you to be outward, you know, requires your energy to be outward and for you to be dealing with people on stages with masses of people? I mean, the, I think there's a, there's a difference between the energy that I, that I use and that I, that, I, um, that I experience when I'm on stage and when I'm actually doing my job. That energy I love, you know, like performance mm. is ritualistic. You feed off of the audience. It's interactive. There's like a, there's a purity to it when you get to the heart of it, you know. It's everything mm. around that energy that I don't like. And I think it's, it's, it's very recently, it's kind of in the last couple of years of my life that I've been processing the fact that, I mean, I've been on stage my entire adult life. I started performing when I was 21, you know, and then very shortly thereafter, like, you know, I kind of blew up. And so I, I've never got to define my adult life outside of those eyes of, you know, of the, the crowd's eyes, you know, and I think that that more than anything is what fed my anxiety. You know, um, and, mm-hmm. and so, and I mean, I guess like you, because you were also really young when you started out and you were, I mean, I remember, I mean, I was in, I was in high school, university when I was seeing you working on TV, you know? So I think, I think that it's an incredible opportunity. And I think I feel very blessed that I got to get into media, arts and entertainment at that time, as opposed to now. But I also think yeah. that it, it took a toll on me and really increase my my social anxiety oh my goodness i feel like i'm speaking to someone who gets it who gets why yeah. i decline events who gets why yeah. when i do say yes i suddenly get filled with these uh, just a whole lot of anxiety like i need someone to go with me because mm-hmm. yes sometimes i do have the balls to do these things on my own but just the thought i have to prepare so much in my head yep. you know so i feel yep. like i'm speaking to someone who totally gets it about why I like my small little universe of a small group of friends, uh, just me and my family and my kids and my friends, and that's it. And not like these masses all the time. I have to negotiate when I I engage. You know, I have to really be selective about when I engage uh, uh, social media or even big crowds because afterwards you just feel so, so exhausted. But you know, you touch on something that, that era that era when 
we started working, I think youth culture in this country was incredible. YFM mm. had started, Kayo had mm-hmm. started, Kwaito was giving us a new energy unlike anything we'd ever known before. So you're right, mm-hmm. that's, that was an incredible time, in fact, to, to enter the arts, to be in media, you know, to be a creative in this country. Mm, definitely. I mean, there was, and there was also so much, there was so much diversity in terms of the offerings, you know. I think Black culture globally was also kind of in this Renaissance explosion period. And certainly in South Africa, I mean, youth culture was exploding in a way in, in an unprecedented way, you know? Um, and there were so many, I had so many reference points for the kind of artist, the kind of woman, the kind of voice that I wanted to be, you know? It was, a, I mean, you were on TV. I was, there were people like Judith Thursa Puma. There were people like Pamela Nomvete. There were, you know, mm. I was, my family stayed in Yeovil and there were all these different kinds of political, but cultural, but artistic figures all kind of moving in that space and you know they were they just just in, even just in terms of like pure visual aesthetics right for, for black mm. women there was a whole spectrum of how I could look how I could wear my hair how I could sound you know how I could rep, how I could present myself and I feel like over time that space narrowed in a very yeah. oppressed in a in a very um, in a very white supremacist misogynistic way, and I think we're in a moment where we're seeing that kind of flip again, you know, on its yes. head and and, and yes. open up again, which is really exciting, you know. Um, but for a while, you know, I remember like I mean, at, ten years ago, I remember looking at the mainstream and being like, "Yo, if I had not." Experienced the late '90s, early 2000s. I wouldn't exist right now. I can't imagine what a young woman like me then would have to, you know, shape shift and conform mm-hmm. into contort herself into becoming in order to find space in the mainstream. You know, um, but I mean, right now, I think that we are. I think we're at the beginning or in inside of of, of a renaissance again, which is very exciting. Yes, and which is why I also connect quite a lot with culturally what I'm seeing, you know. And I must say that there was a period, and it does, you're so right, because it felt like there was this conveyor belt that was producing the same thing over and over and over again, like a factory-style production of talent, of aesthetic, of optics and all of that, you know. And it was quite... And you wondered, it sat back, you know, as someone who's been doing this for a while, and you think, okay, where you are in this in this industry, you're in this particular phase of it and all that. And I remember thinking, okay, let me try, let me try, let me try this weave thing. Let me try this wig thing. I took them out, in fact, a couple of days ago. There are three that I thought, okay, let me try this, you know, and see what happens. And I tried them, but no longer than three days. It did feel like a betrayal of something that you that you intrinsically are, you know, and you're kind of yeah. portraying that and, and it felt really foreign. Not to kind of place any judgment on other people's choices because we're sure. not all going to be comfortable uh, with the particular aesthetic. But I do look back and I looked at them and thought, what the... What what was going on in your head at the time? <laughs> <laughs> I had to get real about that. Like, okay, all right. 
<laughs> and, the, and you know, it's so it's also so sad that I mean, black people and black women in particular are so incredible that that we can. I mean, we literally black hair is an art form. It's it's yeah. there's and and the the again like the the spectrum that you can choose from, you know, to to uh, to get inspiration for who you want to be in the world. You know, it's it's so wide and so vast. But it's also, you know, it's also not defo- devoid of really oppressive politics, right? So, mm. I mean, the, mm. how you how you wear your hair, the filter on Instagram that you choose, you know, none of it mm. is none of it is really neutral, and that is very sad. But as as somebody, I think as people who occupy positions of um, of visibility, as as I know for a fact because women and, and people, when I move through space, the people tell me that, you know, that, that be just me being in that space makes people feel better about who they are, you know? Um, and, and that's not something that I wear. I don't wear that lightly, you know? Um, I also try not to wear it as a burden either. So, I mean, if, Mm. if, you know, I mean, because we deserve the right to play and to experiment and to make mistakes and to, and to get that straight hair if you want that if you want that straight hair to be blonde if you want to be blonde like enjoy yourself with your body you get one little bit you know um but but i mean when you have like production houses in this country like 10 years ago i remember very clearly one of the biggest production houses in this country was saying behind closed doors that you had to be light-skinned with a weave and a big bum and a hundred thousand followers for them to consider hiring you you know, mm. and and mm. I mean, when you look at that, and and it's like, okay, do do I play into that to get a job? Because I do tick those boxes. But then, if I play into that, am I going to be able to sleep with myself at night? And it's sad. You know what comes to mind is when we are the objects of our own oppression, when we yes. are participants and objects of our own oppression. And I think what you've described there is a perfect example. And standing on the outside with that perspective and outsider's perspective, we can point these things out. And one can only wonder when you are within, when you are that object of your own oppression in that kind of way, uh, if there is any kind of awareness, you know, or a sense of what is happening, you know, what it is and what the impact will be. I think in your heart and your soul, one feels it. Maybe you might not have a language for it. You know, maybe you might not have a historical, political frame for it. But I think, you know, the heart knows when it's being oppressed. Like the, the, mm. the self when it's not seen, you know, when, when, it's, when, when it is being confined and when it is being shoved into a box that denies it life, you know, that denies it agency, that denies it the ability to express who it truly is, you know. And I think for many, many people in, in, in our business, like, I remember being told at the very beginning, like, I, there's things about this business that you just have to accept. Otherwise, you're never going to work, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think yeah. I, I, I've always kind of pushed back against that, you know? Even sometimes to my own detriment, I've pushed back against it just because of the nature of who I am. But, but if, 
but I also, you know, have, have a lot of empathy for, for the people who don't push back because, you know, it is about survival. It is about access. It is about mobility. You know, it is about people wanting to ascend and grow in their careers. And people get told, like, this is who you have to be. Otherwise, how no more young, you know? And then what do you say? No, I hear you. You know, Lebo, I just think you're dope. <laughs> That's uh, all. I think you're dope. I'm sure you've heard. I'm sure you've heard all sorts of descriptions like people just saying you're this, you're that. For me, it's one word, you know, the embodiment of like just one word, dope. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you so much coming from you that means the world to me thank you so much i respect and admire you and have for a very very long time as you've held it down forever forever <laughs> i mean i literally remember being in like matric and you couldn't have been i mean you you must have been at school that time you know i think, and yeah, you, I think I mean, you're too old. older than you yeah yeah and that, I'm, I'm i'm 41 not 1979 so i remember when you were well, just turned 43 Ah, okay. Okay. So you were like fresh out of school also, but you were like a baby doing that show with Tim Harwood and Daddy <gasps> Twisty. You know, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this black girl on TV doing the show, being smart. I mean, that era, like, you know, and then, I mean, there you were. And then there was Pam, like kicking ass on Generations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were, there was Tandis were coming out and exploding and Lebu Matosa. And it was just, I mean, I, you know, you don't realize when you're in a revolution that you're in it. You know, yes. it's only because yes. you can't be the thing and then also step outside of it and observe it. But now I look back and I'm like, damn. There like, was magic I, going on. There was magic was going on. Because the scenes, the scenes that you describe or that, you were mentioning earlier on when you were 21 and you made a decision to just commit your talents and your energy to poetry. I used to be in those poetry clubs with Moshaga, Kojo, you, you know, when the poetry scene was like the coolest thing at the time. And we all thought we were just so deep, you know, sitting in these crowds with people going up on stage, lighting cigarettes and delivering their poetry and thinking, this is it. Like we had all the answers. We we were it. You know, we were, <laughs> we were the people we were waiting and for. Were, and the people who were in those clubs. I mean, I remember seeing the first time. Well, not it wasn't the first time, but the one of the times that I had, you know, like a, like a, sat down and had a conversation with Brenda Fassi was at Jungle Connection. You know, so there was also this. There was also this way that like pop culture, mainstream, the underground, the artistic scene, but also, you know, the, 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 the hype, the hype scene. It was all like one thing. I mean, I remember seeing Zola for Monday Blues doing a poem. And then like, it yeah. felt like five minutes later, there he was for Yuzo Yuzo. And there he was a superstar, you know? Um, yeah. And I wonder, like, is, does that kind of cross-pollination exist now? You know, like, where is the underground? What is feeding those cultural spaces now, you know? Mm, but the thing is, I always think every generation thinks that they lived through a magical period, you know? That's and true. we That's could true. be victims of that right now because this That's generation, yeah, thinks that they're the dopest thing since, you know? So mm-hmm. I always try and resist to that, especially with my kids. And I would talk to them about, oh, in my time, this is what used to happen. But the reality is that for them, this is the realest it's ever going to get. And it's the best that it, it's going to get. 
but have you like how do you do know tell me you do know surely you know how energizing and infectious you are um <laughs> i'm sure but aniko show you know <laughs> you know years ago finula dowling this um, amazing poet and novelist in cape town she was like the the writer and I, I think you know it's true for all creatives like you have the people yeah. who love you on one side you have the people who lo- hate you on the other and you walk a very lonely road in between and in that road you make your work you know mm. um, so you, you, do you know what I mean so I think mm. as you said like as you said in the very beginning like I think all of us get a handful of people who genuinely know us and love us and who see our bullshit and still take and still love us in spite of it. And you know, the people who know the real, real you, um, all of us, you know, whoever you are, out of the 7 billion, however many of us there are on the planet, we all get our handful. Mm. And then some of us happen to be people that do work that or live lives that make it so that more people are just aware of who we are, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I try to keep it in perspective because, like, life really keeps me humble, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, still, I still get my ass kicked by life. I still go through very human experiences. And, and I still, I mean, I, I, I can't afford to be, like, so self-aware that, you know, I start to think that I am the person in my bio and that's it. You know what I mean? Because mm, then, mm. Do, 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 do you know what I mean? Because then like, then, then life becomes, then life becomes a facade, you know? And I've been in yeah. that, I've been in that where my life has, I've allowed my life to get so sucked into my work and so sucked into the world of perception, which is, I think, carries a lot more currency for us because we live in, we live and work in spaces where perception literally dictates like how you work, where you work, how you earn, how much you make, how you feed your family, you know, but I still have Mm. to like keep it in perspective, you know, because then if, when I lose sight of what's real, then like, what do I give my children? Then I come back home and I'm drained or I'm hurt or I'm angry or I'm upset or, you know, or I feel low, you know? Um, I, I, I appreciate that my offering, that what I bring to, to, to the table, what I bring to my work, what I bring to space is, is unique. And, and, but it also, it comes at a price. It means that sometimes, you know, um, people people accept and receive and appreciate what i have to say but sometimes it takes them a very long time to catch up and in the interim you know i experience a lot of rejection and isolation for telling the same truth that people later on wake up and realize was true so how do you then how do you stick with it you know because you clearly have to have a stick to itiveness about yourself to be able to stick with something that is being met with rejection and still, you know, uh, stay committed to it? I think I have the benefit of um, being able to observe a lot of people throughout history who have occupied similar positions, you know, who have said things that were contrary to the norms of their time, but that were actually like ahead of their time and true, you know, and who turned out to be vindicated by history. You know what I mean? So, so uh, with those kinds of examples, you know, I, I realized 
I, I, I'm aware of the fact that I'm not the only one. You know, this is not mm. a, this is not a story that I am inventing. This is this is the life of this is the life of creatives. This is the life of people who are blessed with some kind of vision, right? Um, and, and I think also what's helpful is, I mean, now being older and um, being mature, middle age is really interesting because I've got yeah. like enough experience behind me to to have seen and really been through some shit. But there's also like half of my life is still ahead of me. You know what I mean? Mm. So in, in so so I still have the opportunity to take risks, and I I can still you know life is still new and still fresh. I can I can still change paths. You know, but with the benefit of what I've seen. So. Having, having seen these cycles kind of come and go, having seen that, okay, what I was saying 10, 15 years ago, it took people a decade to catch up to, you know? So it, it helps me to have confidence in the fact that what I'm saying right now that people don't understand is also valid, you know? And even if it isn't valid, even if I'm wrong, you know, I have the right to be wrong. I have the right to make mistakes. Yeah. I have the right to make those mistakes publicly because this is this is also my playing field, you know, and I'm human. You know what I mean? But but mm. having been vindicated over a long period of time makes me also realize, well, okay, it's okay. It's okay. The thing that is weird, that is out there, the thing that people are not affirming, the thing that people don't understand, like stick to it because it hurts more to conform, you know, to to them, to yes, the norm, and betray. To the yeah, it's not just conform. There's also it's layered and laced with betrayal in there when when, when you don't. Definitely. So, how do you regard your battles now? You know, crisscrossing the Oof. identity issues uh, over the years. You know, um, needing to take solace in words and in your writing. You know, just some of the battles you've had in your 41 years of life. You know, how do you now regard them? You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the big issues that I'm working through in my life is like, okay, what does it really mean to be a warrior? You know, what does the life of a warrior look like? What do, what does, what are the pitfalls that, uh, that, that warriors face? You know, uh, what are some of the things that have taken out other warriors? You know, how do, how does a warrior replenish themselves? You know, and, and I mean, it's part of me kind of fully embracing the fact that, okay, this is what I am. This is the energy that I also, one of many energies that I move with, but this is also what I'm here to do. And the, the, the beautiful thing again about maturity is that I, I can now kind of see the war coming, you know, um, before I would just wake up and find myself in the war and then the war mm. would just like completely drain me, take me out, burn me out. And it would feel like I've been steamrolled, you know? And now it's like, I can feel the war coming and the war has, the war has a beginning and a middle and an end, you know? Uh, yeah. And sometimes the end uh, transitions into another phase, another shape, another dimension. But it's also about intuitively being able to read, well, okay, this phase one of the battle is done. Now we're moving on to this. It needs to either remix or it must die, you know? Mm. And, and, mm. And, because, and, with, and with that in mind, I can also be strategic, you know? I can, I, and I can, if being strategic helps me to do a better job at, taking care of myself within all of this, you know, so that I don't get burnt out because, I mean, my kids need me to be alive. They need me to be whole. They need me to be sane. Um, I don't want to be so drained that I give the worst parts of myself to the people who love me the most. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even yeah. though this is what I have to do with the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
So what are your what is your superpower or what are your superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, back in the day when I was, when I was starting out as an artist and I, everybody was telling me that I'll never be able to make a living as a poet. And so I was like, okay, what is this thing, this thing that I do? What is it? You know? And I distilled it down to two, uh, sets. You know, I have an ability with language and I have an ability to connect with people. And when I take those things and I remix them and combine them, what can I do with these things, you know? So I can, being able to remix these two things allowed me to act. It allowed me to be on TV. It allowed me to produce. It allowed me to record. It allowed me to speak, you know? It, and, and, and it still allows me to um, find new ways of, of combining and remixing and fusing them into... Uh, forms of creative expression that I never thought that I would be able to do, you know? So, I mean, it comes, it comes down to, to language and to a real love and empathy for people, you know? And, and that, I think those are my superpowers. Because I also wanted to know from you, with all the things that you do, like you just said now, giving me a sense of your award-winning writing, your presenting, your acting, your activism, um, your theater work. There's so much, you know, that you've been able to do with these superpowers, right? And you've managed to build an incredibly versatile career. What's the secret? How did you, how did you build a career this versatile and still be able to have a semblance of a dignified quality life, you know, within an industry that many said you'd never be able to make a living out of? Wow, thank you for that. I think it was born it was born out of necessity. I mean, you know, South Africa is an environment that I, by virtue of our history, by virtue of the diversity here, by virtue of all of these cultures that are coming into collision with each other, it's it's like a breeding ground for immense creativity. You know, there's a reason why this place produces such extraordinary artists. Um, but it produces artists, like, it produces artists faster than it can sustain artists, you know? Mm. So, mm. I and, and that also has a lot to do with historical and systemic oppressive forces. So, for example, you know, if, if we were getting royalties for all of the television shows that we have done that have been aired and rebroadcasted over and over again in South Africa and beyond our borders, right? How many of our performers would die in poverty, you know? Mm. So mm. Just, just by virtue of the fact that we are not uh, compensated in, uh, I, I think, fair, ways that are fair and equitable for the labor that we put into our work and, and, and that, that um, are commensurate with the kind of profits that people are able to make, particularly broadcasters, off of our work, you know, it forces us into a position where you can't just rest on one gig. You know what I mean? I've, mm-hmm. I've never been in a, I've never had a job where I could say, ah, I'm just doing this and I can cover my bills, Gishapo. You know, I've always had to be like, okay, yes, I'm doing the show, but Kamo, I'm writing and Kamo, I've got that commissioned work and Kamo, I'm doing this corporate. And okay. And then, and then also, I mean, at some point in my career, I also realized that the work that I was doing for money was not the work that was the most fulfilling for my heart and for my soul, 
you know? Um, mm. And it was a very difficult realization to come to because, you know, for many artists, like, you know, for many artists, the goal is just to be able to survive, you know? So for me to be in a position where I could survive doing what I was doing, even though I was hustling and, you know, juggling th- multiple things, but I, I was able to survive. Like I was in this position that I dreamed of being in and that so many people dreamt of being in, but I wasn't happy. And I realized it was because, you know, in the very beginning of my career, I was, I was hungry because I had something to say more than anything else. So I made a decision, you know, um, about a decade ago that the work that I do for money pays for the work that could never pay me, but that will build my legacy. The work that, the work mm. that truly keeps my soul alive, you know? So, yes. um, do you know what I mean? So for, for all of the corporates and the commissioned work that I do, you know what I mean? It's very important for me to do theater and to do festivals and to write and to record because I think that the, the, the paying work is going to feed me and my family, but the, this, this body of work that I'm building is going to build my name and, and that's going to outlive me. Mm. Um, and I hope that young people hear that message because it's so incredibly important for longevity in this industry to have that kind of focus and deliberateness with what you do. Um, So where, where do you feel safest? Where do you feel safe? Like in your world, whether it's in your superpowers, like where, where do you feel safest in your life? Oh, wow. Um, With my family, with my kids, that's my cocoon. Um, and, and in the process of creation, you know, in, in the rehearsal space or in the space where I am collaborating and finding how work comes together, how a new piece is, how, what, how, when I'm learning what a new piece is trying to tell me, you know. Um, and it's interesting because that space is very, uh, it's very uncertain. You know, uh, new work mm. is really fragile. It's but I, there's something about that that I really love. I'm drawn to that energy of um, uh, of wanting to be in in the room with other creatives and wanting to bring a story to life. You know, I feel really safe there. Um, I feel really safe in my spiritual life. You know, when I'm when I'm talking to my ancestors and talking to God and you know working through my shit. Um, those are the things that kind of hold my life together. My, my family, my spiritual life and my creativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you've been fucking shit up for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, since the age of 21. <laughs> it's like, that's a hell of a long time. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking about this long time. career. You've had a, a really long career, right? And you've given us great work. And we'll talk about your most recent projects. I mean, recent to the moment of recording this, of course. But, you know, in due yeah. time, it'll be, there'll be some time and distance between uh, the, the work uh, and later on. But what do you think has been the greatest gift of Blackness to you and the, gate, the greatest gift of uh, blackness from you. Wow. What a profound and beautiful question. So, whew, um, I mean, I, the, 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 incept, the, the origins of blackness are, are, are mm. born out of pain and struggle. The fact that 
Black people have turned Blackness into just this phenomenal, uncontainable spiritual force that is able to mutate and transmute trauma into culture, into ever-evolving culture and bodies of Mm, thought, wherever mm, it mm. goes, you know? Um, Mm. That is, that's an incredible source of strength and power for me and always has been. And I think I've been very lucky in the sense that I mean, my my parents are my parents are from uh, what Western Native Township and Sophia Town originally, and then our families got relocated to Soweto, you know. And mm-hmm. then when they mm-hmm. left South Africa, they left Soweto, you know. Um, my dad left because he wanted to study engineering. My mother left after '76 because she was an activist. And I get for her and many of her peers, it was you know, do we stay and yeah. face Maburu and go to jail and be tortured like everybody else? Or do we leave, you know, and survive? And I mean, in my mother's family, at some point, out of six kids, like five were in exile, you know? Mm. Um, wow. So yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, for, can you imagine for my grandmother, for my grandparents, what that was like? Like, I mean, it was, it was really hectic. So I found myself in, I grew up in a town called Providence, Rhode Island in New England. Mm. And Rhode Island was a major slave port when New England still had slavery. So, I mean, the origins of the origins of the town that I grew up in were very, very, very deep. And the black communities that were in that space, um, the old black communities could trace their lineage back to Native Americans and to slavery. And then Mm. it had become, because it was in in such close, it was about three hours away from New York, an hour south of Boston on the major freeway that runs across the Atlantic seaboard. I grew up by the sea and it was an immigrant town. So, I mean, it was full of immigrants. Like, I, I mean, it has one of the, I think Providence, it's it's an incredibly small state, but the city itself has the highest concentration of immigrants per capita in the U.S., like percentage-wise. So, I mean, I grew up with kids from everywhere, from from the Caribbean, from West Africa, from Southeast Asia, from Latin America, from... And I mean, I kind of just took it for granted that, you know, okay, this Mm. is like who we are, you know? Um... But of course, I mean, all of that was within the white supremacist, you know, kind of what, you know, the the violent framework that is America, right? Um, So, I mean, I I feel very blessed that I got to see a blackness. I got to see the, the, the same forces that made it so that my family had to leave South Africa were the same forces that we were confronted with in the United States, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got mm-hmm. to, do you know what I mean? And I got to see yeah. how this, say, this, this thing, this apartheid energy is the same energy that built America, is the same energy that built colonialism in the Caribbean, is the same energy that built colonialism in Latin America, is the same energy that built colonialism yep. in Asia, yep. you know? And, and, and that these yep. are the ties that bind us. But we are extraordinary because in spite of all of this, we still, we take what we have and we keep rebirthing and reinventing and reimagining and producing incredible bodies of knowledge and culture and thought mm. that travel the entire planet, you know? In um, spite, in spite of that. I, I get in you. Spite, I hear you. Yeah. 
despite mm. to spite like we just keep doing it you know i think one there's of the, the one there's of the word myth in you i mean really you're like in <laughs> in spite of that to spite <laughs> But you know the the messed up part though the messed up part though is that I don't think we get to see we the the painful part of our history and what it's done to how we see each other is that we mm. see each other through the lens of white supremacy we see each other through the lens of particularly the global west you know so so in a lot of ways like i mean i you know i see these like diaspora wars on twitter and you know the ways that 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 the continent pathologizes that the people the, the, the west and the way that that blacks in the west pathologize us and it's really because we're seeing each other through the lens of history books that we didn't write we're seeing each other through the lens of a media that we don't own we're seeing each other through the lens of eyes and mouths that are not ours but the struggles are the mm. same mhm mhm they reminded that we still I mean, have a long way to go a long very way much to so go. very much so very much so i think so i think that the blessing of of blackness for for in terms of my own particular story is just being able to move in between these worlds you know right. and and you know and kind of and sometimes belonging and sometimes not belonging but i think the push and the pull in between is what allows me to be able to move mm. and to, and to mm. access all of this you know yeah so it's like this perfectly imperfect it's perfect in its imperfection you know the yeah. uh, the the life that you've led and the battles and the issues it's you know it's perfectly imperfect and yet and then it gives you this unique perspective you know, that 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 you you now have that as a result of all those experiences so you are uh, are very brave in the content that you share that you write about and all of that and i think you've you've gone to war not just for black people but you've gone to war for women you know to in your mind what's the bravest thing you've done Oh gosh because people who people who um take in your work find a lot of bravery in the things you get up there and say you know um in its vulnerability but also in its courage to confront injustice in the world but maybe what you deem to be the bravest thing is something that we we we, we don't know it might be something completely different Wow. Wow. Um Woo, I think being being a breadwinner in my family as an artist in South Africa. <laughs> that's like ninja school, man. <laughs> Flying kicks every time you step out. Okay. Babes, that one is fucking Kung Fu, it's Jiu Jitsu, it's Samurai, shit, it's Capoeira, it's all of it at the same time. Yes, sir. Big fighting uh, every day when you step out. <laughs> like if I had known at 21 that that, that, that choice to, to, to embrace uh my passion for 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 poetry mm. was going to lead me here you know to having to figure out how i'm going to use my creativity to survive a pandemic and feed people ah yeah <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah but 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 at the same time i mean i think i think 
if I hadn't taken that risk, like what would my life have become? If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not, if, and even now in this moment, like if I'm not taking that risk, like what is my, what actually is my life worth? You know, I, I, I mean, I think about how, um, if, if, a, if a piece doesn't scare me, you know, if, mm, if work, mm. if it doesn't scare me, then it's not, then it's not transformative. You know oh, what I mean? My if God. The, yeah. If I don't hit the yeah, if I don't hit the moment where I'm like, oh my god, I can't say this. No, there's no way I can say this. Okay, it's over. Game over. Okay, they they fought me before now, but now they're gonna kill me. I'm gonna die now. You know, <laughs> like if it doesn't, if it doesn't literally make me back away from my laptop, my phone, my journal, then ugh, mm. I'm not interested. It's not gonna be interesting. That is so. You know, you've just said so many. Oh, I just want to pause for. I need. I think I need a glass of water for what you just said because <laughs> there's just so much in there. But I want to just focus on that part about this choice you've made, and there are moments where this choice you've made has been the greatest gift, but at the same time, boy, has it tested you, and sometimes to the point where I must say that choosing radio, right? Sometimes I think, are you a psychopath? Are you mad that you would pick something where every single day your anxiety levels go up, right? Like you, you have the yeah. palpitations, your heart rate goes up. At, you know, and it's yeah. every single day before you switch on the mic, there's this level of yeah. anxiety. And then sometimes there's this insecurity because uh, you're a contract Ooh, worker. Hello. You know? And I must say that uh, I've always found this choice to be a double-edged sword. Because on the one side, there's that insecurity, yeah. whether it's the mental, whether it's the financial and so on, that comes with it. And yeah. then on the other side, I couldn't imagine doing anything else in, with my life. Um, and at the same time, right? I, on that side of the knife, there's this incredible grace that is so humbling that it just mm. shuts out all mm. the other doubts and questions that you should have become that economist, you know? You should have become that economist. And you, 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 things would be yeah. different right yeah. now if you were that economist. Yeah. But then I, I'm always struck by the awe uh, and I'm, I'm always in awe and struck by the grace that I've been given to be able to have this kind of career where I can build a life for myself and make a home for my children, you know. And mm. so I, that, that always makes me back up uh, a little. But it doesn't mean... I don't acknowledge the fact that being a freelancer is yep. a jungle. It's a jungle. Yeah. Grace is, is such a beautiful word to use. It is so apt. Um, it's, it's, it's a concept and an energy that I acknowledge often in my life because I think that when you put yourself in the firing line of unknown energies all the time and make yourself vulnerable on stage, on mm. radio, that mm. it's, it's grace that really holds you together. You know, it's grace because you have no control over what the next caller is going to say or how people are going to respond or, you know, all you can do is, is, is prepare yourself as best as you can, you know, build the tools that you have in your arsenal and bring your best mm. self to it. But you can't control it on the other side of the knife, that's such a beautiful metaphor as well. On the other side of the knife's edge is grace, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, mm -hmm. I also think like, I think, you know, we are, 
the energy of apartheid, the spirit of apartheid that still lives, that still lives, you know, at an atmospheric level, at a systemic level, even in our own DNA, is it's it's the spirit of fear. You know, I often, yeah. um, I mean, when I'm when I'm kind of in in meditation and interacting with my own ancestors and with myself, it's I, I I'm often humbled by the fact that I'm living a life that they would have been killed, isolated persecuted, jailed for trying to live, you know, yeah. that, that it's not that, you know, it's not that the women in my lineage didn't want to be single moms. It's that they couldn't leave. You know what I mean? Like the, the, yeah. the, the grace that I had to be able to, to carve the life that I wanted to be able to say, okay, I'm going to do this job and I'm going to take care of my family and I'm going to raise these babies. You know, it's not that the women that I come from couldn't do this or didn't, or it's not that they didn't desire to do this. It's that they physically could not, they, they, they would have been mm. destroyed. And, and some of them did try and they were destroyed. So, so I think when we walk this, when we walk that knife's edge, when we, when we, confront, you know, our own, this fear, this anxiety, we are working through generations and generations of deeply instilled trauma. You know, we, we're, we're yeah. confronting the realities that many people in our DNA were denied, you know, and, and the more we confront it, the more we get used to, I love that energy of, um, I mean, I also, I get so scared before performances that, um, bravery or courage is bravery or courage isn't the absence of fear you know it's 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 i'm afraid but i'm still gonna do this thing because i have to do it because there's something bigger in me that tells me that i need to do this and i'm gonna do it and then when you come out on the other side and you've done it it's like yes yes okay <laughs> yes you know yeah i did it I, I mean i don't think any of us do this by ourselves you know I, and and i think there's a reason why like we're called to these spaces and why we're called to these spaces to do this so publicly because you're transforming it for yourself. You're transforming it for everybody who's listening. You're transforming it for everybody who lives inside of you. Yeah, yeah. Whew, that's a lot. <laughs> it's, like, it's always a lot every time I consider that thought. But, you know, earlier I was talking about wanting to study BCom, and I know that you studied law, right? Yeah. Um, and your mom... Yeah. Your mom also was a law student, you know, and carried on yes. studying when she got from Tefloop, went to the U.S., of course, after 76 and her activism here, being part of the Black Consciousness Movement and so on. And then she obviously carried on studying when in the U.S. Is there a link with her choice to study law and yours and I ask that because I know that as a parent, I'm a parent to a 21 year old who has own ideas, right? Has her own ideas. (laughs) And I've had to get the biggest universal slap and lesson to say, back off, mommy, back off, mother. This is not not your life. And so sometimes I wonder about the things that we inadvertently, our parents' dreams and ambitions that we inadvertently make our own or they inadvertently. Uh, desire for us to the point where we start to uh, make it ours when maybe it wasn't ours to begin with. Do you know what I mean? I completely, I mean, my grandfather was, uh, he was a driver. He drove for 
Unilever and Joshua Dorr, and he knew Joburg like better than anybody. He was the one who took us to school and he taught me Joburg when I started working. My grandfather had a mouth on him. Like, I know <laughs> that what I've got, it comes from that lineage, you know? And my grandfather always used to say, I'm a born lawyer. Nah. I'm a born lawyer. I think, you know, I think that rubbed off on my mother. I think that rubbed off on me somehow, you know? Um, but I also think like that somewhere in, in, in our, in, in our family is a deep love and of, of justice, you know, and, um, a, a curiosity about kind of philosophy and, you know, humanity and how, um, how, how those how those forces intersect with justice. You know, even when I was studying, I did my BA in law and international relations. I never did my LLB because by that time I got sucked into the underground. Um, but my favorite <laughs> subject, you know, when, when I was doing law was jurisprudence, which is like mm-hmm. the, how societies develop laws, you know, the philosophy behind the law. What is the aspiration that people, uh, are, uh, what is the aspiration that humanity is reaching for when we create constitutions, when we create law, you know, because the law really is an aspiration, right? Um, yeah. And I think in many ways that those are still the elements that I am drawn to even in my work now, you know, uh, justice. What is the highest aspiration that we can reach for as human beings? You know, what, what makes us fall short? What is in this interesting distance in between, you know? I do mm. think that rebelling against the parent um, or even or, or resisting whatever the authority is. I mean, the parent, I think, is probably the most supreme authority because you are like, you are the government, you are the <laughs> minister of justice, you are the courts, you the are warden, the prison warden, all of it. Yeah, you are everything. So, I mean, any child who is trying to assert themselves, any intelligent child who's trying to find out who they are in the world, you know, has to rebel against their authority figure, has to rebel against the parent to find themselves, you know? Mm. Um, and it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to negotiate. My babies are still small. My son is, my sons are nine and almost four, you know? So, I, I mean, I can see in my nine-year-old, you know, already, like, Yay! I mean, where and and these new generation kids as well. Like when they bring it, it comes like the thunder. You know, <laughs> all that investment in education and you know t- teaching them to have open minds. The first people that they tested on is you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I thought that when I brought it, I brought the thunder. You know, to my mom. No, <laughs> but no! now I've got someone bringing yo. Fire flames. Yo, Hey, you can't even beat these people, you know, like the way (laughs) everything is a negotiation, is an explanation. And like, I mean, there's a point where, I mean, just like, if I don't have the answers, I don't have them. I don't know how many times I've said to my son, like, please, like, just Google it, you know? Oh, what's on peace? Oh, even though you but I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine for you. 
I can't imagine for you though, with older children in an environment like this yeah. and a girl child. I mean, I don't know which is better actually, the girls or boys, because in this, in a space like this with misogyny, the way it's set up, you know, it's just like mm-hmm. raising girls is terrifying. Raising boys is terrifying. And then having people who are young adults with agency moving out on their own in the world. Oh my God. It, oh my God. It is a lesson in surrendering. It's a lesson in just letting go of those reins. You know, you want to control, you want to hold on to them quite firmly, but it literally is a lesson in just let go, stop controlling, release, leave it. You know, it is, it, it is what it is. It will be what it will be. At least that's been the biggest lesson of the past three years or so for me. And it continues to, to bring more. You know, it's not done and it's not going to be over for a very, very long time. But now that you're talking about your babies, what kind of man wins your heart? Like, what kind of man wins <laughs> <laughs> levels heart? <laughs> Uh, oh gosh. Um, what have I tended to be attracted to? I've tended to be attracted to uh, guys who are who are brave in their own right, who are quirky in some way, who also mm. kind of go against the grain, either in terms of like what they do or just the risks that they've taken in their lives. You know, um, I I tend to I like I like men who are funny. I like guys who are smart. Um, it's great if they're creative, but yay! Also, my the artist, I I, I don't <laughs> yo. I don't I don't know if I have a stamina for an artist at my big age. <laughs> but, but but I mean the, the the artist mind is always like I mean that's always what I am drawn to. I it's always what I feel a, a, a connection to. But the artist's life, yes, is trying to find. An artist, Wamunna, Oling Stable. Oh, Jehovah. Ooh, that's a rough one. That's a very, like, are very you rough, sure rough you want to open the door to this? You want to let it hey. open your door? Are you sure? <laughs> Pandora's box. Masapo, like everything from everything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that's okay. That's the, that's the male artist, right? But yeah. I don't want, and I'm wondering now, how much does it reflect your ideas around black love? It's beauty Ooh. and it's pain Ooh. because oh, gosh. Uh, it's 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 deep. It's yeah. Aza, I mean, I've 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 said like, man, the big, the most humbling joke is being a heterosexual feminist in South Africa, Baton. Like, wow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. <laughs> There's no dating site for that. There's no niche dating site for that. I mean, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better about not being apologetic about who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think when I was younger, I, uh, and I mean, and even, I mean, even not, not even when I was like younger, but I mean, even, even like the, uh, up to, up to my thirties, like attracting guys who were drawn in by my light, but who wanted to dim it also, who once they got close to it, didn't know what to do with it, you know? Wow. Um, so it's very important for me now to really be clear about my 
my boundaries, but also to really be clear about like, how, not just how, how, not, this man doesn't have to just love me. Like it's not enough that he loves me and is passionate about me and whatever. He needs to really love himself. Like what does he want in this life? You know, mm-hmm. what does he, what is he willing to live and die for? What is, what are his dreams? What are his goals? Does he have something that he is passionate about? Because otherwise my passion is going to drown this man. And, mm. and then he's, and then he's gonna, he's gonna have no choice but to want to destroy me because he doesn't have anything else that he doesn't have anything in his own life that's comparable to what I have in mind, you know? Um, and, and it took me a long time to really, to figure that out, you know, mm. a very long time and a lot of very, very painful relationships. I don't have um, healthy examples of relationships that I can draw from in my family or in my immediate circle. Like for me to have to, when I look at relationships that I would want to emulate, you know, it's people that I'm kind of observing at a distance, you know, and saying, oh, wow, you know, or or even people who have found the kind of love that, um, that I would want, like who found it like much later in life also, you know? Um, So, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm in a place where I'm accepting that the love that I, the love that I want, the love that I dream of is, is a freestyle, you know, um, um, it's a, it's a, it's a blank page. It doesn't have a template that, 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 that this, the, the black love that I dream of is like, it's like, you know, it's like getting into the room with the artist and collaborating and building something out of nothing and finding the story, you know? Yeah, know and, it's o- of- and it's okay if it's a hybrid of different things. It's a hybrid sure. of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and there's no judgment. It is what it is. Sure. Sure. I mean, also accepting that even, I mean, having said that, that, that I don't have healthy examples, the, the love that I've seen and known and observed was the love that could thrive under the constraints that it was presented with. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like black, like black masculinity being what it is in this place, you know, it's an oppressive force and, and it comes into, it, it, it oppresses, it oppresses itself. It oppresses what it comes into contact with, you know, and, and for, for, for the members of my family, you know, who, um, who, who had these, these, these complicated relationships, you know, it, it's, it's not that they, it's not that this was what they wanted. These were the tools that they had. This was what mm. people knew, you know? Mm. And, and kind of also trying to see that with some grace and with some compassion for myself, because if it wasn't for that love, I also wouldn't exist. Right. That's why I was saying that there's, it can be wrapped in pain, but you also have to realize that the beauty of it, you know, the love that it's all about has given shape to you and you are something to marvel at. You know, when you think of the self, you're like, I am something to marvel at and it is really mm-hmm. is built. Oh, you have a line. You actually have a line in one of your, your uh, poems about this, uh, that we're the product of what both love and pain. I mean, I'm really busted. I mm-hmm. your line there. Mm-hmm. But there is a line about, you know, the two of those that we are really an embodiment mm-hmm. of, of both. Mm, oh yeah, you say that we are fashioned, we're fashioned by the fragile balance of pain and love. That's Between true. love and pain, that is true, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, but I, I think also as I, as I get older and as kind of peace becomes more important in my life, <laughs> there's, there's pain and then there's pain. Right. I, I don't want, yay! I don't <laughs> want 
trauma. I want a trauma. I, guys, guys, too grown there's enough for that. Trauma. It's not even, it's not age per se. It's like you're too grown for that. You've seen enough uh, to know oh, that there's no space for that. You know, it's being grown. That's how I look at it. I think certain things that happen, like, you know, I always think being broken, Jan, is juvenile. You know, I'm too grown for that. So <laughs> this, that type of pain yeah. that you're talking about, I always yeah. think, no, I'm too grown for that. Way too grown. Hey, hey because you know, like, you're gonna, it's, it's gonna be nice for the short term. Then you're gonna slide into the darkness. You'll be mm. holding on to the niceness at the beginning. By the time you get out, you'll be obliterated. And then it's gonna take you how long to build yourself back up? Like, and you know how, how much effort that takes. I... Mm. Hey. hey, that takes a lot of effort. This is only part one. For more with Lebo Mashile, catch part two of my interiority conversation with her next. Thank you for listening.